thank you, Innocent, for taking the time. I really appreciate you uh, agreeing to be on my show. And I'm uh, based on the the conversations we've had up until this point, I'm super excited about chatting to you. So <laughs> we'll just dive straight in. And, sure, yes, um, let's do it. Maybe just set the scene by telling us a little bit about yourself and uh, kind of where you've come from and how you've ended up doing what you're doing now and what it is that you actually do. I studied off uh, studying psychology a long, long time ago. We're not going to say how long ago. And a family of psychologists. So it was a, a, a very natural move for me. I landed up not being selected for my master's and then landed up going into business, quite interestingly enough. Stayed there for a couple of years. Um, and, and I think, you know, studying psychology is never really a, a waste because you use it in how you manage people and relationships and how you look at products and that kind of stuff. And over the years, landed up then in HR consulting and then took a, a 13-year holiday and landed up in marketing consulting at a global company where a lot of my, uh, a lot of my learnings around remote working come from because I worked for a company that outsourced marketing to global companies. And, and you know, these are, these are fairly big names, um, uh, Fortune 500 companies and things. And so there I really learned a lot about people, people in business. And I had an incredible journey at that company in that the CEO was very forward thinking around how do you create a positive work environment? What do we do for people? How do we care for people? How do we show we care? Which was really interesting because most companies that have a global footprint, because that company had representation in five um, continents, they become very corporate, they become very cold. And so towards my, the end of my, my tenure there at a stage, I landed up being the learning and development manager amongst other things. And I think the pull towards HR started again. And by that time, I'd been using coaching for quite a while to manage teams and stuff. And so I decided that it was time after 13 years for a career change. And I started Perform Forward uh, in September 2017. And Perform Forward is really an extension of everything that I feel about work. Now, I was 14 when I got my first job. I did officially lie my way into it. I told them I was 16. Um, and my mother almost killed me because for two years, she had to drive me up and down to work every day at the local video store. <laughs> um, so yeah, and uh, I just loved work. I've always loved work and I love the purpose it gives. I love that I can go to a place where I connect with people. I love that I now don't go to a place and I still connect with people and now I can access people from across the world and I can learn about cultures and the way we do things. And so Perform Forward is really about how do we replicate that for everyone? Because apparently not everyone is happy at work, which is the most alarming statistic ever, or the most alarming thought ever. And so for me, happiness at work is really about understanding clarity of expectations and being guided along the route. So not waiting for a whole year before you hear you've done something wrong. Mm -hmm. And so Perform Forward takes a look at things like organizational strategy, culture, the business leadership, and how do we institute some form of performance optimization not really performance management to help people get to their goals instead of, you know, judging them after the fact. And uh, that's how Perform Forward was, was born. That's quite a, a journey. <laughs> Just a little. <laughs> now, you mentioned the strategy, culture, leadership, performance, optimization. They're obviously all linked. So I don't know if you'd like to maybe go into how they are linked 
And uh, there's obviously a specific order that they have to occur in for optimizing the workplace and making it a happy place to be. So uh, would you like to dive into that a little bit? Perfect. So I have a story that I tell my clients and I tell them that we are going on holiday and we're going to a country called Ekromok. And in order to go to Ekromok, we're going to go to a travel consultant. And the travel consultant will set us up on this journey perfectly. And when we get feedback from her, it's a beautiful travel wallet. And the travel wallet has got four compartments in it. The first compartment has got my ticket. And my ticket tells me exactly where I'm going to go, when I must be there, and for how long I'm going to stay there. And if you think about it, that is like any goal or strategy in an organization. So the moment a, com a company says we're too busy for strategy, it means no one knows where we're going, how long we're going to stay there or what to expect of us. So for me, that is the first step in, in the process. In the next little pocket of our travel wallet, if our travel advisor was worth her salt, the second pocket has got some form of input around what are the norms around being there? You would not send someone to Saudi Arabia from the West and not say, please make sure you cover your head and your arms. You wouldn't send someone to Portugal and not say, just remember, all the food there is going to be very spicy. So be prepared if this is not your thing. Mm -hmm. And so that second pocket is about culture. How do I need to act to fit in in order to achieve the destination, that strategy? So now I know where I'm going to go. I know what are the norms and the values and the language that I need to use to be there. Now, you'll start seeing the clarity in that. Now, the third pocket, she's, of course, left me some emergency numbers. You know, police, fire brigade, where to get more money if you spend all the money. That kind of indicator. When you get stuck, this is where you need to go or who you need to speak to. And that pocket represents for me business leadership. Because I think for me, the big shift is that business leadership should not be managing people, but leading people. Mm. So when our employees get stuck, we must go, well, I pay you to do it. So fix it. We must be saying, okay, as a manager with my skills, with my experience, with my clout within the organization, because sometimes people just can't get things done just because they don't have the status. Mm. They are my emergency people that I go to and say, I need to get unstuck or else I'm not going to achieve my goal. So that's my third pocket. My fourth pocket is a bit of currency. And currency is important from the perspective of I need to know what I must spend, where I must spend it for optimal effect. She's going to go, you're going to Cuba? You're so hiring one of those old pink cars and driving around for a day, right? That is the ultimate thing to do. So that to me is performance management because performance management says in order to get the most value, what we need you to do is spend this in this place to achieve this goal. Of course, using leadership, making sure you live within the culture and following the strategy. Yeah, yeah. By the way, Ekromark is just commerce written back to front. So if ever you're doing any business, you need to be in commerce. You need to know where you're going, what the culture is, what the leadership needs, and how to manage the performance. For sure. So I don't know if you want to kind of dive into each particular portion, um, starting maybe with the strategy, because obviously that's your goal setting, and working through the, the steps with us. Strategy is essentially setting up 
your, your various short, mid and long term goals. However, the best laid plans often laid to waste. Um, do you have any pointers on how it's essential to set realistic goals while at the same time uh, remaining agile enough to adapt to the changing circumstances? You know, how do you find the balance for what you envisage for your business um, while remaining flexible enough to cope with the inevitable spanner that gets thrown in the works? I know that we're speaking a lot about COVID-19. That's what's in everyone's minds at the moment. But uh, I mean, yeah. if you're running a business, you are going to have upsets, whether big or small, throughout the business journey. So mm. tell us how to, how to cope. <laughs> So I think, <laughs> love to. So I think I'd like to push to call this portion business advice for small businesses. Mm. Now, doesn't mean that big businesses have strategies. Trust me, they don't either. Uh, drives me batty. But I think what we often do is as small to medium businesses, we go only corporates need a strategy. Only corporates need a plan. And I, I actually agree with you. It's all about goal setting. So interestingly enough, if you ask the, the people in the know right now about health concerns amongst people, they say, get people to make their beds. Just set that one little goal in the morning because people are so, on a personal level, they are feeling so numb. They're feeling so exhausted. They're feeling so overwhelmed that they eventually end up doing nothing. And they say, just get up and make your bed. Once you've made your bed, it sort of kickstarts you to go, okay, I suppose now I should eat breakfast. I suppose now I should. Where if we don't, if we don't have those little goals, we don't get through it. And dealing with COVID is the same thing. Is right now, just throw away all your big strategies and ask yourself, what do I need to do for the next three months? And break that down into smaller milestones for two reasons. Firstly, for that agility. Because it doesn't help you set a goal for six or eight or 12 months. And we don't know how lockdown is going to shape, how people's health is going to be impacted. We don't know. There's a lot of sociological and political things that I don't want to go into now. But really in the uncertainty, rather be certain about a week and try and get through a week than try and be certain about six months and you lose it. Now, that business that I told you about that I worked at, the CEO uh, he was actually also a pilot. And he always used to say, the interesting thing is if you ask people how to fly from Cape Town to Cairo, they go like this. He says, it's not. He says, you actually fly beacon to beacon to beacon to beacon. And I think that specifically for people of my age, and I am definitely older than 26. I know, don't be shocked, but I am. <laughs> um, we were raised with this mentality of right and wrong. Mm. So you either do it right or it's wrong. And I love his beacon to beacon because beacon to beacon says, I can make it through this week. And whatever what was right for this week just happens to be right. Then I can decide for next week. And if I get to the point where I can start seeing ahead, I can carry on adjusting. And I'm, I don't ever have to look back and go, I was wrong. Mm. Because you weren't. You were literally doing the best that you could. So the same with goal setting. For example, I have a client who also subcontracts in, uh, uh, contractors to her clients. And they just come back and said, right, we're going to stop all of the contractors because we've got to cut our numbers and we'd rather release the contractors than our full-time employees. Now, immediately you can say, oh, well, I was wrong to start into contracting. They were always the first people that were going to be cut. Well, she's had a successful business for five or six years. Why would we try and eradicate the success of five or six years because of something that's happened now that could not be foreseen. 
So I like this concept of a growth mindset. And a growth mindset says, I can grow and move, adjust, and be agile. And for me, that's the biggest learning around strategy. Don't worry about the word strategy if you're in a small business. Just set goals. Set goals for three months and then chunk them down and say, in this week, in this week, in this week, and feel free to adjust. If you've got your kind of three-month goal and you can see after the first couple of weeks that, holy crap, this is not going the way I expected it to. Um, I've made it beacon to beacon, but things have come up. And I, even with my planning, I'm not going to make it to the, the end goal of those three months. And because I'm not hitting that goal, it's going to affect my six and my 12-month goals as well. How do you cope with having to change your direction? You know, obviously, it's, it's a mindset. And like you said, it's a growth mindset and that kind of thing. But a lot of people get very stuck in the process and they're unable to pivot. So how would somebody kind of cope with that? They can see things are going awry before they even get like three weeks into their Perfect, season. perfect. I think the important thing is there is to me a big place for self-reflection and understanding your why for the business. For example, I was doing consulting before COVID struck. My why is I want to make people happy at work. Then COVID struck and consulting and, and consulting was shut down. People, you can't go and sit at a client's site and it makes everything else a lot more difficult. So I could have gone, oh, well, you know, I've had this business for three years and now just, you know, you know, that magic period of three years for businesses and just when it looked brilliant, it went, okay, now it's not going to work. Anymore. My why managed to manifest itself as speaking engagements, as my potential vlog as I as I spoke to you about it managed to manifest itself in online training for clients so I took my why and as long as I have my why I have energy and so therefore no matter what happens I don't need to do a task I need to live a why mm. and so as long as I live my why I'm able to absorb and adapt and adjust I think the important thing for me, though, Megan, is this concept of the next normal. I think what defeats us is that we keep on trying to go back to what it used to be. Mm. And I think we just need to cut those little apron strings and say, right, what I actually need to do is, you know, someone said to me, I'm about to lose everything. I have no options. And I said to him, if you're about to lose everything, you've got every option mm. because you're going to lose everything in any way. You can try anything it might still pan out better than losing everything. Yeah. And so I think if you've got your why, it will give you more resilience and more energy. And then if you can stop trying to get back to what it was and go, hold on, whole new playing field. For example, I was speaking to a company uh, that are electricians and they were reeling and they said, you know, even with a permit in level four or five, we, we simply can't get to people. If it's not urgent, we can't do it. Mm. They actually landed up establishing a solar power company. So when the recovery occurs, they actually have that or a second business that they can go into. And yeah. a lot of the solar, solar power stuff can be managed via apps. Yeah. So if we land up in this again, they can still deliver a service via an app. I think this whole COVID thing, and I, I don't want to get tied up too much with COVID because this too shall pass. Um, but I think that in terms of learning how to adapt your business, it's been 
a bit of a crash course. And those that are able to adapt really quickly and, and being able to pivot their business are the ones that are going to come out of this relatively okay. I mean, businesses are closing and people are getting retrenched and that I wouldn't wish that on anybody. It, it's a terrible, terrible situation mm-hmm. that we're sitting in. But um, I think that the, the opportunity for innovation and reinventing what you do and who you are is, it's an opportunity that doesn't come around very often. So, you know, you just have to roll with it and um, hope that you come out okay it's, then. <laughs> it's an interesting, it's an interesting concept. There's a book on grief. It's called Second Firsts. I, I forget the author's name with, and, and my apologies because it's an amazing book. And one of the topics that she discusses in the book is that as bad as grief is in that moment, you also for the first time, and she was speaking about adult grief, like people of my age. So she was talking about when you are young, you are raised to certain norms, traditions, standards, values, practices. You then grow up and you move out of your parental home. You might even move to another city, but you will maintain what you were taught as a child, just out of sheer habit, if nothing else. Mm. And she says, actually, now is an appropriate time when you are at the peak of grief. It's actually an appropriate time to sit down and go, what of this is really me and what of it is a learned behavior? And I think I've, I wrote a blog that's going to go out this week around um, grief and COVID and, and why we feel everyone goes, oh, I'm, so, I'm so bored with COVID, but I'm so exhausted. I'm so tired. Like, you know what? It's all just one big conspiracy, you know, and that is all signs of denial and depression from grief. And I think we're suffering grief from COVID. And I think that's exactly what you're saying is now's the best time to go. Okay. I can evaluate all of it. Do I still want to keep this? Do I want something else? Where do I go from here? It's what else can you do really? Um, You you have to, like I say, you have to roll with the punches because what, what is the alternative? Indeed. But I think it's more than rolling with the punches. I think, you know, so many people speak about a second chance. I was interviewing someone for one of my clients yesterday. And he said, oh, if I wasn't this, I would be an engineer. And I was like, you just went from creative services to the most structured thinking. <laughs> and it was just the most amazing leap. I could see it in him. He, yeah. he, he perfectly, you know, he had everything there. There was no, it wasn't this airy fairy thing. And, and I thought, what a gift to know that you have that. Now, how do you make it happen? And I almost think, was it Winston Churchill who said, never waste a good crisis. I don't think it's a rolling with the punches kind of thing. I think it's a hot diggity dog. I've got an opportunity. How do I make it work for me? Before we go too far down this rabbit hole, um, I, was, I want to just kind of cover... Get us back where we're supposed to be. <laughs> so we've discussed the strategy. Now we, we're moving on to the yes. culture side. The culture. Um, I come from a corporate background. I worked um, in small companies. I worked for kind of like a family company. I worked for a medium-sized company. And I've worked for um, a large corporate company. So I've kind of crossed the sphere of all the various different sized corporates that you can get. Mm. And I'm all too aware of the amount of dysfunction that can happen in a corporate setup. The bureaucracy, the the red tape, you know, the, the more people you add to an organization, the more cumbersome it becomes. And a lot of mm. uh, the time they say that the 
kind of to counteract this, you develop a culture. Mm. And uh, I worked for a very well-known company that did have a culture, but it still kind of was, it was still cumbersome. So I don't know if maybe the, what a culture actually is was misunderstood. So would you be able to clarify what exactly is meant by culture? That is an excellent question because you're right. It's sort of like um, in in standard HR, it's a bit of a tick box. We need a culture. Boom, there's one. <laughs> so <laughs> what, it, what it means and how it lives. So um, culture is nothing other than the way we are. So, for example, what regulates the way you and I are chatting right now? We were both probably raised that you don't interrupt each other. Not that I'm very good at that. My apologies. Um, <laughs> we were both we were both raised with you know certain ways of thinking of acting of making decisions and that's what a culture is and i think sometimes i think that's where some companies really go wrong in that the culture is a tick box instead of a real culture because i think a lot of politics can actually be set aside if the culture was probably properly defined and then communicated and then lived because half of what happens with politics is people making decisions that make no sense where if we have a culture, I might not like your decision, but if it's in alignment with a the culture, then I, I have to live with it, you know, because we, we, we all have to make it make sense for all of us. So I think one of the big learnings for me is culture must support strategy. So, for example, I am not going to give millions of rands to someone to invest who comes to my house in board shorts and flip-flops. There's a reason why financial services and wealth managers dress the way they do. It's part of their credibility. It's part of their proof of what they can deliver. And the same way, culture is exactly the same. It doesn't help. I've had so many companies and they come to me and they go, give me Google's culture. Then I go, but you can't have Google's culture because you're not Google. You need to understand what's your strategy. What do you need to get done in order to fulfill the strategy? And how must people think and behave and act and feel and make decisions in, in that environment? So I like the idea of a corporate culture or a culture that is set up by leadership, but is then customized by employees. And I'll tell you why. One of my clients a couple of years ago had a bunch of developers and a bunch of people in a call center. The culture was exactly the same. I know because I was there when it was happening. But it looked different in between those two because there were different rules that they could play at because the business requirements were different for the two of them. Mm. Another company, the one with the global footprint, there is absolutely nowhere under the sun that a Canadian, American, an Indian, a Brit, and a South African are all going to understand the culture exactly the same way and display it the same way. Yeah. And I'll give you an example. A friend of mine calls me the other day in a total tiz. I said, so what's the matter? She says, no, there is this corporate training for a large corporate that needs to get done. And at the end, the AI gives you interpersonal feedback. Now, the irony is she's somewhat more British in her approach. She doesn't like sharing. She's much more stoic. Of course, the course was designed by a bunch of Americans who are much more forthright, who are much more out there, who don't mind sharing. Neither of the cultures is wrong, but you can see how they don't mesh. So we need to take that culture 
for the organization and say, these are the behaviors that we expect and this is our baseline, but how do you make it yours? And I think that's how we close that culture gap. And for me, it is most critical that when you're a one-man band that you have a culture for your business because as you start hiring people, you need to help them understand what the business is about how they're expected to develop, because then they will, when you hire the next person, help you carry on that message. Too often, it's 10 years down the line, and we hear, oh, but we've never had a culture. It's like, well, actually, you do have one, but it's not written anywhere, and that's the problem, because how do you fight something that you can't pin down? So how do you go about creating a culture as, um, I mean, in the context of this conversation, you know, we're speaking about micro and small businesses. So one man bands, really small companies with only a handful of employees. How do you start creating a culture? Does that um, come from the owner that's kind of, this is my personality and this is how I want things done. How does that translate from it's my way or the highway versus I'm creating a, an environment um, that is conducive to making people happy and performing well for my business. So that's an excellent question. And I think it's a yes and statement. So firstly, as I said, the culture must support the strategy. What is it that I want to do? And when we build a strategy, when I define strategies with my clients, we take a look at the mission and the vision as well as the strategy. So what is important about this business and what am I trying to, what service am I trying to get out there? Over and above that, there's always the unique selling proposition, right? Which we call the USP. And often the USP helps define the culture because the USP will say, we are the most innovative to deliver services to clients, whatever. So what we do is we start there. I think you're entirely correct. I think that very often the business, especially when it's small, is based very much on the values of the leader. And I think there's not really a problem with that as long as what the leader is bringing is valid. So, for example, as strange as what it is, when IT tech uh, billionaires started wearing black T-shirts on stage, it was fine. It became a bit of a thing and it was fine and it was accepted. But if that did not land well, then they would have had to adjust. Because Mm -hmm. the question is not, what is your personality? It is, what is this business needing to do? Remember, we're driving the business, not an ego. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where the question comes. Always, even in coaching, when we do coaching, how does this behavior serve you? If it serves you, good. If it doesn't serve you and those around you, then we need to get rid of it. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's fine that in the beginning it's about an entrepreneur and their dream. But I think that there needs to be sensitivity because I was in a business where over a period of time, I think I was employee number seven. And eventually we landed up being 50 employees. And there was such a loss of a sense of uh, purpose and family in the organization for no other reason. But that individuals came in and they were contrary to the culture of the MD. Instead of it being this beautiful culture that was brought in by this uh, CEO, other people had come in and they had their own stuff that they wanted to add to it. And I don't know that it was necessarily wrong what they wanted to add, but because they were breaking with the culture that we had as a small organization, it was incredibly disruptive. It caused a lot of distrust and it really impacted productivity. When it comes to company branding, especially as a small company, branding to me is a visual representation of your 
company culture to mm. the market. Because culture mm. is something that I believe is kind of like inside the organization, but branding should reflect the, co- the company culture to the outside world. Now, how do you, as a small business, we were speaking about the norms in the industry. So like the tech, like your Steve Jobs wearing a black t-shirt. Mm. That is the, the culture of the company. That was his image. That was how they branded themselves to an audience. But like we were saying, you're not going to give 5 million rand to a guy with a black t-shirt to invest in the stock market for you. How do you find the balance between your culture and the way you want to represent yourself and the industry norm? A lot of people don't want to be a cut and paste of the industry Mm. norm, but uh, it is important to obviously have some sort of baseline. Would you be able to help us find the balance between the two? So I can, and it's quite interesting that sometimes no balance is needed. I think it's about authenticity. Okay. So for example, I met the CEO a couple of years ago of one of the biggest consulting companies in South Africa, and I think actually the Africa branch is huge. And he walked in and he had on his normal, more formal gear and he was wearing bracelets. And I actually noticed it. Oddly enough, I thought, how much more approachable does that make him? Mm. So it was quite interesting. I think it's about authenticity and I think it's about you being who you are and people will like you or dislike you for who you are and then they'll be prepared to buy your products or your services. So, for example, there are people who will not want to work with me for love or money. And bless them. I send them on their way because they're going to find that consultant that's going to do exactly what they want them to do. I think there's much more strength in authenticity and being confident in who you are than what there is in conforming to a norm. Mm -hmm. Having said that, Having said that, and here's the big proviso, is people do make judgments. I think I posted a blog yesterday about it. People make judgments based on what we see. And so when, for example, I had a stage, I could be quite extroverted. I had a stage had a luminous pink fringe. Then it was green. Then it was teal. There was, there was a brand that I was hooked on, and I literally tried all of the colors excepting yellow because yellow, I look like an egg. So... My niece comes and works for me for a couple of weeks in a little internship that we had launched and was blown away by the fact that her aunt with her funky colored hair, and it's normally short and spiky, it's very long. This is my COVID cut, like it. Um, It's normally short, spiky, and then it had these flashes of these bright colors on it. And she was like, people listen to you and you have purple hair. And, And I go, yes, but I've worked here for more than a decade. I haven't always had purple hair. So sometimes it helps to conform slightly more initially to establish a baseline of trust. And then when people know you, it can you can then move around freely. Because, you know, I have this thing with, um, I, I don't have children of my own, but I have adopted many other people's children uh, emotionally over the years. And then they go, but Steve Jobs wears a black T-shirt and shorts. Why can't I? And I go, because... He's already proven what he can do. He's already a trusted name. He's already known. So sometimes initially, one just has to play the game a little bit more and then uh, then bloom into where you're going to go. I need to answer your other question that you you didn't know you asked. So you said that culture is the brand inside. 
Mm. And that brand, you know, a company's brand is actually more external facing. Mm. Actually, culture is the brand inside that should be so strong that it automatically gets connected to externally. Because if I have the right brand and my team is living it correctly, it'll come through in the way that they deliver products and services and the way that they take care of my clients. And my clients will understand the culture based on my employees and that's why i always say if you've got happy employees your your company will make more revenue because they will be good ambassadors and they will show that the culture works cool so we've discussed strategy and culture um the next Mm. step was leadership so there's obviously a massive difference between the titles of manager and leader and uh, there's a lot of literature about how the one is autocratic and the other one inspires and there's also the question of accountability managers tend to point fingers leaders tend to assume responsibility how do we go about in a small organization avoiding falling into that kind of finger pointing manager trap and instead develop leaders, both within ourselves and within our organizations? Because obviously, again, we're speaking about the the micro-business. So I think that there's, for me, there's a very interesting facet to this, where we are managing employees as if we're still in the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. So in the early 1800s, a gentleman whose name I've now just forgotten, sorry. <laughs> he was actually an industrialist, but he was also fighting on behalf of the employees. He said, we should work for eight hours a day. We should rest for eight hours a day. And we should have eight hours a day to spend with families. He said that, I think, in 1814, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Why is it that in 2020, are we still working eight hours a day in one chunk? In fact, just to push the point home, because I do love this little stat, I think the first Model T Ford, rolled off the production line in 1880. So that was, what, 60 odd years after that rule was made. The first car was only invented. Does that show you how old our management practices are? (laughs) Now, the interesting thing is that those management practices at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution were set up for scalability. They were set up for unskilled labor or semi-skilled labor. They were set up in an environment where there was a massive gap between educated and uneducated. There wasn't what we have today where you've got skilled, semi-skilled, and then you've got this range. They were like, uh, either you had a a skill or you had tertiary education or you had nothing. There was like this big divide. So what happened was they would, firstly, there was machinery that needed to be run. So we needed to be at a particular place to get work done. Next, people weren't educated, so it was far easier to just tell them what to do rather than teach them and explain why. Because of that, there was a lack of transparency, and there certainly wasn't transparency about the finances of a business because people just didn't understand it. And if you told them what the finances were, they just asked for more money because they didn't understand what was you know, the nuancing of actually, yes, we do make a lot of money, but we also have a lot of costs and so forth and so forth. And so I find that we are still in this place where we treat people as if they are unskilled or semi-skilled, most, most particularly, which irritates the life out of me, is we remove their personality and their being from the roles. I've got a, a public speaking topic that I actually call human beings, not human doings. Not my quote, someone else thought of that phrase. But you expect it to leave your, your age, your culture, your 
uh, gender, your whatever the language you spoke at home, whatever diversity you could bring to make this environment rich, you had to check at the door. Don't want to hear about your sick child. I don't want to hear about this. I don't want to hear about that. And we're still doing that today. Mm. So the problem is that nowadays people are knowledge workers. Many people can work from wherever they want to. They understand your finances and your books probably better than what you do. So what happened was there was this big shift in what we do, how we do it, who the people are that we do it. We're fighting so darn hard for a bit of inclusion. We're fighting so hard for someone to identify with a gender that they want to identify with. Why are we still stripping this away? Because this person who sits in the call center better pitch up as a whole person when someone phones in and complains. They don't want to be greeted by a machine. They want to be greeted by a whole person. And so I think that is the, 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 the crux of it is that management is very industrial age. Leadership is very knowledge driven. Yes, every once in a while we have to batten down the hatches and make use of a bit of management. But if we could lead people, we could teach people who will actually be able to be much more independent. Mm. Now, there's only one thing that's needed to do this, oddly enough, and so easy. Well, that's what I tell people. <laughs> we need to move from task-based work to outcomes-based work. Mm. If I say to you, Megan, I want you to do, develop a podcast. Doesn't matter where you sit. Doesn't matter who you talk to. Doesn't matter what tech you have because you've already got... I mean, most of us just take up a phone, pick up a phone and, and there we can go. Yeah. So, but if I say to you that, develop a podcast versus I want you to tell me what you did every minute of every day in developing this, you eventually get so bogged down in the tasks that you eventually don't get to the outcome. Mm. Then when you don't get to the outcome, I go, oh, you didn't meet your goals. But it's because you bogged me down in in admin and, and fluff and how long my bum is in a seat. I think a, a lot of corporates, I know the, the one that I worked for at the very end of my, my corporate stint, we had to check in and out. We had a, a timekeeping system mm. and that was the most important part of your day was to prove what time you got to work and what time you left. And the fact that you had eight hours in between those two times, you were expected to fill them. My, my immediate manager at the time was her time management skill was absolutely phenomenal. She could get through something. She'd sit down, she'd focus, she'd get through eight hours of work in two hours because she sat and she was focused and now she had to fill up the, the other, the other six hours with, with grunt work instead of being in a place where you can actually say, okay, well, I've done two hours of really productive work. I can't concentrate anymore. I'm going to go and I'm going to go to the gym or I'm going to go for a cup of coffee with a friend and come back and then I'll tackle the next, the next project or the mm. next task. Mm. Um, I, I find mm. it very archaic the way that, like I say, the, the, the most important part of your day was clocking in and clocking out to prove that you were at work for eight hours, especially in today's day and age. It defies logic, but um, yeah. <laughs> It No, it definitely does. So it's quite interesting. I often have to put up with clients that go, "My, I don't have employees. They're a bunch of children. And it's quite interesting. Oh, I'm about to go down a rabbit hole. Yes. Put on your safety belt. Here we go. <laughs> Megan, I hope you have hours worth of space. Oh, sure. <laughs> um, so then they say to me, my employees act like children. 
And I don't know why, because, you know, I tell them what to do and what's expected of them. And I tell them where to be and, and I tell them, I give them everything they need and they act like children. So it's quite interesting because there's a psychological theory called transactional analysis. Now, a lot of people would have remembered this from the diagram. It's three circles underneath each other. And it says that there are three personas within each of us. So within each of us, there's a parent, there's an adult, and there's a child. Now, this means that we are all equally possible to be childish as well as childlike. It means we are all equally capable of being as well as being a caring adult. So what happens is if someone comes to me and says to me, oh boy, my inner child goes, oh no, I won't. I'll make sure it's not washed. I'll make sure it's not ironed. Uh, I'll make sure that I don't have enough uniforms for every day of the week, right? So the moment that you push someone, they're going to flick away to the other side. Mm. But if someone comes to me and says, you know what, for the sake of our brand, and because you are client-facing, I'd like you to wear our uniform. How do you feel about this? Then I'll go, you know, I really don't like uniforms, but I do hear that everyone else does it. It is a part of your brand. And let's say it's something like it's a factory environment or it's an environment where we can get dirty. So, yes, we also wear uniforms to protect our own clothes from, from getting dirty. Hello. Same request. Two totally different outcomes. And so there is this thing that when we have a conversation with someone, we should both speak at the adult because the, the, the parent talks down, the child will rebel up or try and, and adjust and then just eventually flick back because it's inauthentic. But we must try and have these adult conversations with each other. And that's where leadership is about. Now, you earlier spoke about accountability. Adults require accountability from each other me to my manager and my manager to me. So it's not just about leadership taking accountability. It's about leadership saying, innocent, I want you to achieve this goal and this is how long you've got to, to achieve it. Yeah. I then go and I work at it. But I take accountability and I work on it. And if I get stuck, I go back to them and I say to them, look, I've been trying to work on it. These are the avenues that I've tried. I've gotten stuck. Please we help. And then that leader takes accountability and says, this person is a team member and I want to see them succeed. Mm. I'm going to take accountability for this small piece just to help them over the hump. And so that is to me huge. And it's quite interesting how often I land up in situations where when there's problems in a, in a, in a team or at a client, they go, oh, but I was trying to be nice. So I didn't tell them that they weren't doing well. So then you tell them when you fire them. That's not nice either. That to me is people want to be held accountable. They're mature adults. Hold them accountable, but be kind when they get stuck. And, and you know, as a leader, care for them enough to help them. That kind of now is a good segue into the final portion, which is performance management. Well, I'm, I'm calling it performance management, but right at the beginning, you said it's more of a performance optimization. Performance optimization, yeah. So um, management, obviously, negative connotations. Optimization is now trying to help people fulfill their potential or fulfill the potential in terms of the, the, the construct of the, the business so that the business can reach its mm. goals. So how would 
you as a micro business set up performance optimization? Well, we can speak about it in two ways again, you know, within the, the, the context of a, a, a single person business, a micro business, or how, hold yourself accountable as a business owner and then a business with, with staff. So the really interesting thing is that if you've got a strategy, your first goal is already there. And the problem with goals is that they can be really large and very overwhelming. And so we break them down into smaller chunks or milestones. So that kind of clarity is priceless because one of the problems with performance is not that people don't want to perform. It's that they have no clarity in where they're expected to go or there's clarity, but there's a lack of resources. So it's quite interesting that in small businesses, we're a couple of people in a room, we're four or five people in a room, let's say. And we go, oh, but we don't do performance management. You do the whole time. Because while we're sitting in one big room, everyone can hear what everyone else is saying. So we don't need to be debriefed and updated on where people are with goals, where they're being stuck. It's kind of like, hold on, just hold on a second. Harry, we're stuck with us. Please, can you come and help us? Right? Mm. The problem is the transition from that into a formal process. And I think very often people go from that into corporate. What I do with my guys is I build, uh, um, so I, from the name Perform Forward, I implement performance management systems as well. And what we do is with small organizations, we actually focus on very detailed goal setting and talk to people. Because actually the biggest thing with performance optimization is staying in contact with people so that you know when they get stuck. When you know that they, so for example, you know, with traditional performance management, you have a conversation once or twice a year with the manager. Then someone tells you, oh, do you know that eight or nine months ago you made a mistake? I can't fix the mistake. I can't verify all of the details because so much has happened in the meanwhile. Mm. I can't defend myself because it looks defensive. Right. So that doesn't help. If I'm speaking to my team members once a week, once every two weeks and saying, OK, just give me your, your top three things. What are you working on? Where are you at? What can I help you with? What are you unstuck? You know, what do you need to get unstuck on? You don't even need to have a formal discussion once a year because you're going to be up to date with everyone's context. The other thing that really irritates me is when we do performance um, optimization and people ask these I'm going to call it by a very technical term. These frou-frou questions. <laughs> I'm like, the person has a goal. Let's talk about the goal. Are they achieving their goals and are they living the values? Then basically, I don't actually care about anything other than that. Mm. You know, they ask these questions about fitting into the organizational structure and dynamics. If that person is fulfilling their goals, then they are fitting in with the organization, you know? So I'm not, and, and lots of people go, we don't have time to do performance management because it's a lot of time out from real work. Well, if you're not performance managing real work, then what are we discussing? So from that perspective, for me, it's about have clear goals, have smaller goals, keep in touch with people, have high frequency touch points so that you know when they go wrong. Mm. And really, we start people on little conversations, little Excel spreadsheets. And then as they grow, we grow into a system because that's the other thing. People go, oh, I need, I need a system. I need, and they, 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 like, I need a SAP module. It's like, actually, no, you don't need a SAP module because first I need you to get I just need you to get the right conversations going because otherwise you're going to put nonsense into the module in any way. Yeah. You know, you three people, you couldn't afford it even if you tried. <laughs> and, 
And for me, what I try to bring in, for me, it's more about the philosophy of performance management or optimization. Because for me, it's about let's have the right conversations and get the right stuff done. Then one day when I walk in and go, okay, now you've plenty big, I need to give you a system. People go, oh, we've been having these discussions all along. Now we're just typing them in and having the discussion. Yeah. Where if you go from nothing into a full-on system, they go, you don't trust me anymore. Why are we doing this? Immediately, the child responds. Yeah. Because this is a parental action. I had a very in-depth very corporate structure in terms of performance management. We had a half year review and then your final year review. And obviously you were rated on a a scale of one to five. As interesting as the system was, it was just very disconnected from everything that I did on a day-to-day basis. And, you know, like you quite rightly say, six months, while my manager was quite approachable, this was your performance appraisal. You, you go in and you sit and you discuss all your problems and um, in a formal context and you have to capture it on the system and all that kind of thing. I just find that there's a massive disconnect in those systems um, in mm. terms of actually appraising your, your, um, your performance. And it was so much extra work because if you wanted to justify something, you had to give proof as the employee. This was when somebody said I did a good job. This was a compliment I received from a client. And Mm. I I just feel like if you are in touch with your workforce and having regular conversations with them, you don't need all of those justifications because you already know about them. Exactly. Exactly. So I, I must admit the moment someone tells me to write a justification for anything, sorry, as an employee, obviously, as a business person, there are lots of justifications that I need to write to get business deals. Um, and I do it with love. The moment that someone says to me, write a justification why you think X, Y, Z, I, I immediately feel like whatever I'm doing is not valued. It's not seen. Therefore, I must have missed the mark. You know, it's this archaic sense of I pay you to do your work which is not wrong, right? I'm not saying anyone should be paid and then go and sit for eight hours and not do anything. But if I've missed the mark so badly that you don't have a vague idea of what I do, I'm not going to justify it. I'm not going to justify it to you at that point because I'm already earning my salary. Now I have to fight extra. I actually find it quite a, a demeaning thing to be asked to justify why I think I should. I was good at my job, but I found that the more I was asked to justify why I should be getting a a four or a five Mm. on my performance appraisal, the less inclined I was to actually care about it. I would just, I was eventually happy just to take the three. I'm doing what I was required. It wasn't always the like I was providing the minimum required effort. I would put in effort, but I didn't feel I needed to prove it to somebody to justify a higher score. It got to that point where I was like, I actually don't give a damn. Just give me the damn three and let's get on with it. So it's an so it's a very interesting dynamic because one of the things that's really interesting, I was watching a program last night, the name of which I actually don't recall because I was busy working at the same time, but it was about John F. Kennedy. Mm. And it spoke about how his father actually created competition between him and his brothers because there was this love of you must compete, you must be the best, you must be driven. And I mean, it worked for that family because they sure became famous and powerful. But I think that that's one of the things that we miss in in organizations is that instead of uh, celebrating people for their strengths and who they are, we create competition or we try and put them into a little mold. 
And that actually robs us of the richness of what they bring to the organization. Having to justify, I mean, even just the word justify, I think the word justify is just nasty. So if I was to say to you, Megan, I want you to justify why we should invest in your learning and development. That's one question. If I was to say to you, Megan, we've seen the effort that you've put in. We'd like to invest in your learning and development. Would you like to write a motivation on what would interest you to learn about? And would you mind doing a bit of research for us about how much it would cost, you know, so that we can see if we can accommodate any of your requirements? What's the difference? The word justify. Justify means I'm on the back foot. Motivate. Give me your impressions. Tell me what you want. It's customized. I think um, you, when you were speaking about the, the Kennedys, you were saying that they were very driven. And um, I think that that's also once a company, I don't know, can a company get too big? I don't know. But I think that once you've reached a certain threshold, you kind of lose touch with who your, your employees are as human beings and what drives them and okay everybody wants to earn money but money is not really a massive motivator for me so if you are asking me to do a whole bunch of extra work and justify why I should be getting more money I'm not going to bother because that's not what really interests me I think that that's where a lot of appraisal systems do fall flat is because it's a blanket approach and not everyone can be measured on the same they're not all driven by the same thing so you can't you can't motivate somebody to do something if the reward is not in line with what they are wanting to accomplish so um the the two the two sections to that question firstly you asked can companies get too big when we take a look at complex adaptive systems, which, which we take into account when we do scenario planning for strategy, one of the big things is that systems get brittle when they get too big because at some point in time, it becomes so big, there's no way of, of controlling it. And part of the problem is with a complex adaptive system, it's not something that's just going to scale and stay the same. Each one is going to be different, be nuanced, have a slightly different approach. So yes, companies can get too, too big. I think it was in Leaders Eat Last, uh, Simon Sinek actually said that they did research, and he's not the only one that said it, but he's the one that I know, I remember I can quote, is that up to 100 people you can have a sense of. So if you are one of a hundred people in an organization and I say Jack Spratt, then you can go, um, he's the guy with the purple hair, isn't he? You know, uh, you at least have a sense of them. The moment we have a sense of someone, that is the point where we actually create a connection. The moment we connect with someone, it's much more difficult to be nasty with them. It's that whole concept of you never give a chicken a name because if you have to eat it, <laughs> you know. And so it's the same concept of oh, yeah, I, I don't like I don't like Jack that much, but you know I know of him. So it's already like he's a little bit connected to me. I, I've I've got to I've got to have that. I've got to have a bit of respect and a bit of concern for him. So they believe businesses can go too big, and that is why a lot of companies. I don't want to name names because some of them recently folded due to other problems, but where they would, they have a head office and they buy in smaller companies, but they don't necessarily rebrand that company. It's to keep the integrity of the little company going and then just harness it for the purposes of the bigger company. So uh, that's the answer around can companies get too big? Yes, I think they certainly can. And then the other part of it is when companies get that big, 
the only way to manage is through consistency. And the problem is that with humans, consistency doesn't work. So what happens is, and, and you're so right, because not only is it whether the reward is intrinsically motivating, it's about is the job, is this business intrinsic, intrinsically motivating? So as you know, I'm a strengths coach. So one of the things that we look at is what are people's top five or 10 strengths? And we try and find them ways to leverage those to create that motivation if it's not there already. So for example, I like ideas. So I know that any place that I work that has routine work that I don't have to reinvent the wheel, I will probably end my life prematurely. I actually cannot cope with that much routine and discipline and standardization. I constantly want to read. I constantly want new information. I constantly want to develop the field. So obviously that's motivating to me. So then just let me at it. But then I have a lady who works with me in Perform Forward. She's one of my associates. And she is an HR administrator of excellence. I actually, I cannot tell you how good she is at it. Because she enjoys the discipline, the routine, and the structure. And she will make sure that everything's done to absolute perfection in the smallest detail. Mm. Now, I don't want her job and she doesn't want mine. So what happens is we collaborate and we create a, a good, perfect circle between our two halves. In business, we go in and go, everyone must be perfect. Well, if everyone's perfect, it leaves no gap for anyone to bring their uniqueness and their flavor. Yeah. And that's actually what you, what you think, what, what you're also referring to is if I want to sit and read books, then give me a job where I sit and read books the whole time because someone else will fill the next part, the next part, the next part. And when we take a look at what, what it takes to build a well-rounded team or a well-developed team, we need people who can think and can do the strategic visioning and planning and research. Then we need people who can go in and execute that. Mm. We then also need people who can communicate that plan through change management and, 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 and fight on behalf of people and stand up on behalf of those who don't have a voice. Then we also need people who are going to build relationships. who are going to go, hold on, hold on. What about the people? How will this make them feel? So actually we should stop this thing that we were taught at school where we manage for the mold. We should manage for diversity and actually leverage it even more instead of trying to eradicate it. And big companies can't afford to do that because it takes too much money to pay attention to individuals. It's very sad because, um, you know, in entrepreneurship, everyone, well, I had this conversation with one of my previous guests, you know, um, tell me about scaling. Um, entrepreneurs want to scale their business and they want to build it so they can see how big it can get. But I think that mm -hmm. by doing that, you are losing the essence of what the business was created for. And there really should be a threshold to how big you want to grow the business and how much profit you want to be making because you can't always have an upward trajectory. You, you, it's going to plateau at some stage. So rather plateau when it's a small, smaller organization that's still doing good work and still making people happy within the organization and getting too big and saying, well, I created this monster and it's, I've sold it for X amount of money. And now it's a really dysfunctional organization. If that's your personality, I suppose that appeals to, to certain people. So it, it does appeal to certain people. And, and when we take a look at strengths specifically, we see there are certain strengths that love leaving a legacy, not for a necessarily an ego 
but they just want to know that I came and I made a mark and I've created opportunity or something for mm. someone, you know, I've, I've acted in service to someone. So there definitely is that. I think that if we come back to that why, then you can grow the business as big as you want to, mm. as long as you're talking to your people. Because the problem is not necessarily the size of the business. The problem is the breakdown of communication and shared trust, shared values, shared meaning around roles and why we are here. Mm. And it's so interesting because that was one of the things that Apple did really well. Apple said, we are going to build the most phenomenal, the most beautiful computers that just work well. Apple never said, I'm going to take out Microsoft, but they did. So it's about why are we doing this? And it's so interesting. When I just started my business, I spoke to someone, an HR manager, and I said to him, what's your biggest challenge? And he said to me, you know, I miss the old team. And I said to him, yeah, they, they were a great team. I happen to have known the business from day one. And he said to me, but you don't get it. We were going to change the world. We had this mission. We had this purpose. We were going to rock this. And now we're basically just doing what everyone else does. And I've actually got one of my other public speaking things that I do is called passion and productivity. And it's exactly this concept of how do we go from four people in a room that actually have passion for something and scale the hearts in the business, not just the bums on seats in the business. Mm. Because people buy infrastructure, they, they get that funding, the venture capital funding, they get it. And then it's that to them is success. It's always this thing like, how do you, how do you successfully climb Everest? You survive it. Mm. So getting to the summit is not climbing Everest. <laughs> getting to the summit and getting back down. So what happens is they go and they work and they work and they work and they work and then they get venture capital funding and then they consider themselves a success. Mm. And that's where it breaks. Because they don't transition from four people in a team because normally what happens is they then go from four to 15 to 50. Like, quick. Yeah. They don't transition the heart, the purpose, the meaning. They, they just scale up the money. How for a small business that is going to employ? I mean, mm. and I'm, I'm asking because personally, I'm happy to run everything myself. I like being on top. I like the diversity and the tasks and all that kind of thing. That's not for everyone. You know, people want to employ, if they want to grow, they want to get a big organization or, or employ someone to take over the crap that they don't want to have to deal with. So I think the first thing for me is if you're a solo entrepreneur, the first question you need to ask yourself is, Am I energized by people? Because so often hiring people is a bit of a status thing. Oh, I have a business with four people in it. Oh, I have a business with 10 people in it. And what happens is if people exhaust you, then rather do everything yourself. Because otherwise, <laughs> having to deal with someone and then having to teach them when you could have done it yourself much faster actually gets quite exhausting. Right. So when I understand this and I have my company strategy and not the why then i decide okay how do i take this to the next level am i the person who wants a constant person in the room with me or in the business with me because i like bonding with people and i like the building deep relationships then go that route what i quite like i've got a friend who has a virtual pa company what i like is she has lots of clients that come and sort of like rent a PA on a month-to-month -month basis and now it's sort of become other things as well like project management and stuff and they can see what kind of person do I want 
how much do I need this person? Because one of the other big problems with bringing on people when you're very small is if you are committing to take on that person, you're probably taking on that person and their family. So if anything happens and you can't pay them a salary anymore, it's a big impact on a, on a, on a family. So then you can maybe say, okay, maybe first I start by getting someone in a um, temporary capacity, three, four hours a week, see how it goes. And from there, try and manage what your requirements are. Understand what are your requirements? What do you like? What do you dislike? Because what happens is people come to me and they go, I need to hire people. That's like, great. Okay, what's the job description? They must, they must just do the admin. Okay, let's look at the detail first. If we don't have detail, we have no clarity. If I have no clarity, we can't recruit. Right. So once I've got the job description, I can then say, okay, maybe I should bring on someone for a couple of hours. Then I can decide, am I ready to take someone on full time? Because the other thing as well is, a lot of business people, and it's so interesting because I actually had this discussion with someone on Friday, was saying to me, COVID has wrecked my business. All my clients are back. So now I had to let people go, but all my clients are back, but I don't have money to bring my people back yet, but I myself can't generate that amount of money. Mm. And I said to her, who do you need? Bring someone back just for a couple of hours. And she went, and this whole weight lifted off of her because she didn't want to take someone on full-time, there's, there's lockdown. So I think start small, nibble at it and do it slowly. And initially, it's actually almost better to hire people that resonate very strongly with you. So I'm normally big on diversity, but yeah, I'm going to say, bring people in that resonate with you that are not going to take more of your time to continually have to reinforce or re-explain or reconvince to do something in a particular way. And then you build out a core team. And after you've built out that core team, then hire for diversity so you can get new ideas in the organization. And when I say diversity, I mean diversity of thoughts, of backgrounds, of religions, anything. Then, then it becomes diversity as you know it. But for me, actually, it's about diversity of strengths and diversity of skills and diversity of perceptions and approaches because your core team must support you and must keep the culture stable. And then you bring in diversity to constantly tap against it and test the relevance of the culture, but the core team is stable to keep the culture standing so that you aren't overrun by the new hires. Sorry, that was a really long answer. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> when it comes to business, we all read business books and we all watch TED Talks and we all kind of do the same, same, same. And a lot of the time, it's this kind of very black and white thought process. And we forget about the shades of grey. Like, you need shades of grey as well. The other place I've seen it play out is in the latest media sensation. Will work from home eradicate all office work? And it is such a lovely topic right now. I don't know why, but everyone is on the bandwagon that we are all going to, we're going to burn down all the office buildings. I don't know what we're going to do with them. But anyway, there's <laughs> going to be a lot of them. And it's so interesting because what about flexi work? What about we work from the office Monday, Wednesday, Friday. We work from home Tuesdays and Thursdays. And we have flexi time. So we commute in later or we leave earlier. Yeah. You know, people want to go, we're working from the office, we're not. Yeah. And I'm like, but there's this whole range in adult that we could consider. So, yeah. 
I actually read an article yesterday about this very subject, and they said that um, everyone's saying that this is the death of the office, but what they don't realize is that a lot of people actually need that kind of synergy and um, seeing other people. Working from home is lonely. You know, if I think what I do now, it suits me, it suits my personality, but you don't have that input that you had when you were at the office, kind of leaning over to someone else's desk like, listen, what do you think of this? Now it's you have to set up a Zoom call or you have to WhatsApp someone. Are you available to chat? You know, it's it's not as easy to interact with others working from home. Um, it's all very structured. Your, your dealings with other people are all very structured and timed. And so I don't know if this is going to necessarily be the death of the office. I think that it should hopefully open eyes in terms that there are alternatives to getting everybody in Monday to Friday, eight to five. But you know, uh, personally, I don't think it's necessarily going to change. Um, and now everyone's going to be working from home and we're going to be standing with all these derelict office buildings. Mm. So biology actually won't let us avoid offices entirely because uh, of the four happy hormones that we have in our bodies, two only function in, on our own and two only function when we're amongst other people. So when we, are, when we are exercising and you know that great feeling that you get when you've been exercising, yeah. that kick of endorphins, endorphins you can get when you are exercising on your own. You don't actually need people around you to do it the other happy hormone is dopamine and dopamine is every time you hit a goal you get a little kick of dopamine and you can do that on your own so if you go oh today i'm going to clean the house this is my list as you tick every time you tick you get a little kick of dopamine it's a beautiful thing now those two can function when you are all on your own but we need serotonin and oxytocin as well and serotonin and oxytocin only get exuded when we are around other people and we see connectedness, appreciation, uh, you know, amongst people. So biologically, we are set up to never be alone. And we are also set up to never be with people the whole time. Mm. There's, there's the happy medium. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I don't, think, I don't think we're going to get rid of people for some time. We have been going quite a long time and I, I'm very cognizant of oh. your time as well. Mm. So um, I'd like to pop into the, the quick fire round to end off. Define success. I think for me, uh, success is a way of finding fulfillment while serving others. Good answer. <laughs> How do you usually start your day? Is there a particular routine that you go through every morning mm. to kind of set you up for having a successful day? Mm. So um, I am at my best in the mornings when I wake up. So if I've got to do any thinking, ideation, um, I, I like doing that in the quiet of the morning before the telephone starts ringing. So I plan activities early on in the morning to, around that. And then by the afternoon when I'm all thought out, then I want to be on calls and getting energized from the people around me. And then um, that sets me up. That sets me up for a good day. I can, you know, you were talking about someone who could do, you know, eight hours of work in two hours. I can do that if I just stick to my rhythm of my day. What do you do when you're not working on your business? Um, <laughs> I work on my business. <laughs> so I, <laughs> I'm a bookworm. I love, I love reading. 
And so between my Audible account and my bookshelf, um, whether I'm cleaning the house, whether I'm, I, I sometimes dabble a bit in making things for the house and stuff like that, uh, there's always a book playing. I'm always reading something or listening to something. Oh, and I keep my dog busy because he's a puppy. <laughs> it's a big job. It's a big job, people. Yeah, I know. Dogs are, um, well, I've got a Jack Russell, and um, they say that the, it's got the mental capacity of a, a hyperactive three-year-old. So um, hmm. I'm sure that you, as a dog owner, can understand that. Um, yes. Cat, mm. Cats are easy. Cats can keep themselves entertained. Dogs are um, something else. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. <laughs> the next question kind of, I suppose, is a run-on from this one. What do you rely on for continued learning? Now, you, you obviously said that you're, um, you, you mm. read a lot and you listen to I like books. I think for me, I think for me, um, the, the issue is, is not so much the reading or the listening to the books. It's about ensuring that there's a nice variety we always had this thing when, when we were working as when I was working as an HR consultant long, long, long time ago, before I went into marketing and people would say, oh, I'm, I've got lots of experience. I've been in the industry for 20 years. Then we go, yes, but have you been doing the same thing for 20 years or have you every couple of years been doing something new in the industry? Mm. And so I think it's about, it's nice to have that team. So there must be some depth of knowledge, but I think it's also useful to have a breadth of knowledge. It's interesting. That is actually, um, Oh, what is the man's name? The space guy, the electric car guy. Why did I just forget his name? Elon Musk. Elon Musk, thank you so much, our, <laughs> our fellow countrymen. Um, that's actually his claim to fame. They said that part of, of his success is the ability to, he's in an, indus, in an industry, and then someone says there's a problem, then he comes up with a solution from a totally unrelated field. And they actually said that was his claim to fame, is the ability to weave these things together. Yeah, uh, that's actually the basis of design thinking. And it's all about that like lateral thinking and thinking outside the box. But I was chatting to somebody yesterday, funny enough, and I said to her, everyone says think outside, think outside the box. Sometimes you actually need to think inside the box because you're so busy trying to think outside the box that a really logical answer to your problem is probably sitting right in front of your nose, but you, you're not seeing it because you're trying to think too laterally. I think Einstein had said, make it as simple as possible, but no simpler. Yeah, exactly. Sometimes we just try to get too complicated and too clever. For sure. For sure. Final question. Yes. If you had to give one piece of advice to your 20-year-old self, what would it be? Mm. Wow, that's an, that's an interesting one. Um, so at around 21, 22, I was finishing my honours degree uh, as a psychology major and I did not get my master's uh, degree or I did not get uh, a selection for master's and so as I do instead of deciding what I want to do or taking time and pondering it my husband left the house the morning and said good luck I hope you get selection and when he came back I'd started a business gone out gotten the funding everything all in one day <laughs> and um in retrospect, there was kind of this, and it was in printing, graphic design, and publishing, which is kind of like, how does that relate to psychology? <laughs> and there was, I think there was kind of this thing of, it was a bit of a dalliance. It was a bit of a, what made you think that was a good idea kind of thing? But I kept the business for three years. And I would have said to myself, actually, just keep at it. 
Because at that point in time, I sort of went, well, I never studied business. What do I know about owning a business? And, and all the self-doubt actually impacted me as a business person. And now years after the fact, I'm like, jeepies, if I met someone with that kind of chutzpah now, hats off to you, girl. You know? And I think just follow your why and keep at it. And if you don't know something, go and learn it. Don't go, oh, I wasn't meant for this because I didn't do economics or what, you know, business or whatever. I don't have any qualification in, in business economics or, or entrepreneurship. I, I believe that you can actually get a degree in entrepreneurship, which is great. But mm. I do find, um, I don't know, uh, I'm speaking probably way out of turn, but I think that if you study something to that degree, you actually lose your ability to <laughs> to think outside the box and you get kind of <laughs> Here we go again. <laughs> <laughs> to bog down you get bogged down in the theory and you know if things yes. you know I, I, I don't know um, maybe you've got the theory but there's a big difference between theory and and practical application it's an interesting thing in coaching there's something called the beginner's mind keep the beginner's mind and that's about not getting in your own way with your own cleverness yeah. And I think that's what you're talking to is sometimes it's better just not to know and keep going than be so well prepared. And, yeah. and honestly, I'm glad that I got out of the business and I'm glad that I landed up being employed as an HR consultant then as a marketing consultant. So I've no regrets about it, but I remember feeling very small in this very big world. And when I look at it now, I'm like, you were doing fine. You know, there was, there was nothing to be concerned about. By the way, as a psychology major, I must ask you, you've mentioned thinking out of the box twice. Is there something you'd like to speak about? I'm listening to you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Dr. Fraser Crane and I'm listening. <laughs> it's, it's just something that's kind of been top of mind in the last while. And I think uh, I posted a, an article on LinkedIn about applying the principles of design thinking to your business and not yes. so much in crea product creation because obviously design thinking it's all linked to creating a product that fulfills a need mm. but uh, kind mm -hmm. of using that that mindset of and applying it to a service that you offer and differentiating yourself from the norm and from from the competition mm. uh, by using by applying the design thinking principles and and uh, design thinking i mean everyone thinks it's the creative side but it really is more research and coming Analytical. at a problem with empathy and understanding why yeah. it is a problem for people and how, what you can do to um to fix the issue so yeah it's just something that's been top of mind. Top of mind. Yeah. So here's one for you. Don't think out of the box. Throw away the box. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that's a whole different <laughs> we can go down. Um, I sort of feel like I should do a mic drop or something. <laughs> Where can people get hold of you? Uh, you're obviously on social media. We're, we're on LinkedIn. Um, we're connected on LinkedIn. Um, where can they get hold of you? So um, my email address is innocent at performforward.com. And that's I-N-N-O-C-E-N-T-E 
Uh, I've got that extra E at the end of innocent. Reformforward.com is a website with my contact details on. Uh, on LinkedIn, I am available. Uh, you can just search Innocent B, and then Perform Forward has its own homepage as well as on Facebook. So if you just Google those, you'll you'll find them. Yes. I also have a link tree, and my link tree is forward slash Perform Forward, and that will give you all of the uh, all of my contact details. This week. I got my branding for Performance Cafe. Cool. So I will start recording Performance Cafe uh, as of next week. I'm doing a 21-day challenge where I want to do 21 videos uh, in 21 days on <laughs> Performance Cafe. Yeah. But it will be little five, six-minute vlogs. It won't be the full version. And then in August, I will start interviewing as well. So I've got a couple of people that I'll be doing live video interviews with. Oh, awesome. Awesome. Um, this has been fantastic. Thank you very much again for your time. And thank you. Um, no, thank you. It was lovely. I really enjoyed doing this and um, I'd really like to do it again at some stage. Um, so Sure. Yeah. You just pop me a note and let me know when you're available. I have no problem speaking endlessly. <laughs> <laughs> the important thing is as long as you're asking questions that people find valuable, I'll just carry on talking. That's awesome. We'll definitely be in contact again in the future to set something up. Perfect. I look forward to it. Thanks so much, Megan. Have an awesome day. You too. Have a good one. See you, mate. Cheers. Bye. Follow the Business of Podcast on my website, megamillist.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to the YouTube channel at Megamillist. Connect with me on LinkedIn, Megan Darcy, M-E-G-A-N-D apostrophe A-R-C-Y. Chat soon.